Welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there. Before I launch into the content of this episode, I wanted to give you a heads up. Since October is Domestic Violence Month, I've invited some special guests to speak on this topic. Please be aware that we discuss details during these conversations that may be triggering for some folks. Hey there, everybody. I'm back. And today I am delighted to be introducing my guest, Anissa Hudak. Anissa is a yoga therapist and the founder of the Trauma Healing Yoga Therapy Program. She helps sexually traumatized women to heal their PTSD and other trauma-related issues with yoga therapy. As a two-time rape survivor herself, she ultimately understands the needs these women face and helps them to navigate their healing journeys. Anissa, welcome. I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me on today. So obviously this is the Empathic Mastery Show. And so everybody who's here generally identifies as an empath. And I sort of figured, let's start at the very beginning. And one thought that sort of comes to my mind that I'm even wondering about is sort of like the intersection between being an empath and even sexual abuse. But let's see if we get there. Let's just start by talking about you and, you know, who you were as a kid, what your experience was like. Did you know you were different than other people? Like, tell me your story. You know, that's an interesting question. Did I think I was like everybody else? Um, Yeah, I thought that I was like everybody else. I thought that everybody had those kinds of feelings and gifts, and that's just how everyone was. I didn't wake up one day and said, oh, I'm an empath. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just what I've always known. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was, you know, later on that I heard the word and heard the definition and said, oh, wait a minute, I do that. And realized that not everybody else does. Right. So a lot of us have the experience as even as children being kind of marked as being different or being told like you don't fit in, you don't belong. Did you have that kind of reflection? You were saying you sort of assumed everybody had that ability. And I think that's very true for a lot of us is that we just imagine that everybody has these feelings, but, and then we sort of have these experiences of going, oh, not everybody has these experiences, but did you experience that kind of like other kids being like, you're not like us, or did you sort of slide in or? Um, Yes. I always felt like I was a little off from everybody else, if you will, mm-hmm. I was able to connect with adults and have mm-hmm. a lot of adult conversations and long conversations. Even as a small child, I could have a, a long in-depth conversation with an adult and they would open up to me. They would share things with me that probably wouldn't want to share with a small child, but they felt like they could. Yeah. And, you know, that was kind of interesting, but I thought that everybody just talked like that. 
Yeah. It's interesting that you say this because I was having, I was interviewing another guest a little while ago, and she was talking about how at the age of five, (laughs) adults were coming to her and sharing their deepest, you know, like sharing their deepest heart. And, you know, again, that sort of experience of imagining that this is just how it is for all of us. And yet, you know, there are some of us who are singled out. I also can totally relate to being able to relate to adults much better than children. Children baffled me. I totally didn't understand how they were playing or where they were at. Like they totally confused me. So I get really preferring or finding it easier to be in the company of adults as a child. Yes. I would always prefer to be with adults rather than kids. Yeah. Well, and I don't know about you, but like, did you ever get told like when people would say to me, like, enjoy these years, these are the golden years. Childhood is the best time of your life. I was like, that is so wrong. And I remember vividly my grandmother and I were at a museum one day and she just kind of said to me, I was maybe 11 or 12 years old. And she said to me, all these people who tell you that childhood is the best time of your life. She's like, that is not true. She's like, adulthood is so much better. And I was so grateful that somebody validated that because I will say personally, adulthood has been substantially easier than childhood was. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So I guess... Anything notable about aside from the you were clearly the empath that people were coming to and confiding in and connecting with. And there was a part of you that really did recognize that you were different than a lot of the, you know, sort of the average bear. Is there anything else that's notable about your childhood experience? Not really. I realized that I did a lot of people watching. Mm hmm just observing, just watching. And, you know, kids and adults would be like, what are you looking at? Why are you watching me? You know, that kind of, it would kind of freak them out and and be a little disconcerting, but I was just watching, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and being able to really see what they were feeling. Yeah. That was going on around them. And so that was, you know, again, kind of took me out of being in with kids because I did. And I still like to people watch, you know, if you buy me a margarita by the yard and sit me down in a Vegas casino, I'm a happy person Mm -hmm. because I can just sit there and drink and just watch people. And it's just so fascinating. Yes. And especially if you are in a place, one of the places I found personally really uncomfortable to be in was like enclosed, like on the subway or something or buses where everybody's kind of crammed together, especially like a crowd. Well, let me clarify a crowded subway or a crowded bus. Like it's almost like there's just too many people to enjoy people watching. But a place like a casino where you can kind of just sort of put yourself to sort of on the edge of a corner and just kind of watch the world go by and watch human beings can be so fascinating. I totally hear you. I have also had many people say, what are you looking at? Or why are you watching me? And my husband actually is funny because I'll just watch him sometimes while he's just doing his thing and every stuff. And I'll be like, stop looking at me. (laughs) So I'm just like, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah. So I guess the question that I had asked before, and I don't know if there's a yes or no answer to this. I don't like this really just popped into my head, but I'm just really wondering if you can imagine or see any correlation 
between being the highly sensitive, empathic young woman, teenager that you, I'm not sure exactly what your age was, your first assault, your first rape, but I'm wondering if there's any way that there's sort of a, a correlation or maybe the impact of being an empath in relation to the sexual assault. Does that question make sense? Because it's coming completely out of the blue for me. It's not like I planned it. I never really made the correlation until you just asked the question. And now I can see the correlation. I've done a lot of work regarding my first rape. And um, I guess what I realize now is that when it was happening, just the, the anger, the rage, the blackness, evil that was coming from him, that he was feeling, that he was, it was red, it was black. It was just to put a color to it, if you can. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of work with color, so that makes complete sense to me. And in a lot of respects, the work that I've done had to do with that part and parcel with, you know, the actual physical act, having the power and the control taken away and and all of that stuff. This feeling that was um, being generated my way regarding this act. So, yeah, there was definitely a correlation. Well, and I'm really struck by how. You know, I know that for many people, I mean, obviously for anybody going through a sexual assault, there's the physical component of it and the aspect of just, you know, what's happening to our bodies. And then generally there's also sort of the mental, emotional component and potentially the sort of the gaslighting and the kind of just sort of the manipulation. But as we're speaking, I'm realizing as an empath, there's a whole additional dimension to the trauma that is all of the energy that is being downloaded to you as you endure that experience that makes it, I'm sure, like it just adds a whole other dimension to what the experience was like. Yes, that was a great way of summing it up. It's, you know, it's quite an onion as it is. It just adds a couple more layers. Yeah. Well, and, you know, my personal experience um, has been that there was a period when I was fairly young, you know, tween, and I was getting harassed, um, not physically harassed, but, but verbally harassed by other little boys. And what I remember was the hardest part of it was like the telepathic link up. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, the words were bad enough, but it was the telepathic and empathic connection that I think had a much deeper impact on me than necessarily even the sort of the surface of it. So I'm just realizing this as we're talking about it, because I don't think I've ever articulated this before in terms of like, oh, there's this whole other, as you were saying, layers to the onion being highly sensitive and empathic that really affects this. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, I'm not really sure whether it makes, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering, it makes sense to talk about kind of like what were the like what was life like prior to that first assault how old were you what was going on in your life what happened in terms not not the actual event but sort of like what happened in terms of like 
before and then sort of like the aftermath for you? Well, um, I was 18. Mm -hmm. I was in college. I had met this guy in college, really liked him. He had come over to my house. My parents were not there. Um, We started having consensual sex. And then um, in a particular position, it started to hurt. Mm -hmm. And I just said, hey, we need to stop. Wait a minute. Hold on. And at that point, it was like a light switch went off. Mm. And he realized that he was physically hurting me. And he was getting off on that. And he continued. And it went from being something that was really quite lovely to something really not lovely. I I mean, and afterwards, I remember getting him out of my house as soon as I possibly could. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, what just happened? And not realizing that I had been raped. Right. And it really took going into therapy because I broke up with this man right afterwards. I mean... I didn't want to see him anymore because I knew that something was not right. And I knew I didn't want him to touch me again. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple months later, started seeing a new guy, but realized every time he went to touch me, I couldn't have him touch me. Mm-hmm. So I did what everybody else does. We go into talk therapy. Yeah. And that's where I found out that it was, a, in fact, a rape. And, you know, got to a place where I could have another relationship with another man life after that was um never the same Mm -hmm. there is an i guess an innocence that's gone yeah and it was years and years and years of going back and forth into therapy out of therapy and into therapy out of talk therapy and it wasn't until i found my yoga mat and yoga for PTSD that I really started to understand what was happening in my body. I knew what was happening in my brain. Right. I just didn't understand what was happening in my body. Right. And being able to reconnect my body and my brain. And that's when the healing really started to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was just amazing. And then about, I guess it's a little over six years ago, I was raped again. Mm. And I was able to, you know, at the time I, when I was ready, I put on my clinician hat and said, okay, what would you tell your patient? Would you tell your client? And then, okay, let me take that hat off and be me and go get to work. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the things I did was I did go back into talk therapy, which I love talk therapy. Talk therapy is great. Meds are great. There's no shame. I take meds. No No shame. shame. Absolutely. And, but there's another component to it and it's the body. Yes. The body stores this on a very cellular level and we have to move it out. So one of the things I did, as I said, I went back to talk therapy. However, this time I went and spoke with someone who only deals with sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. They're not a family therapist. They're not anything else. They only deal with sexual trauma. I'd never spoken with someone like that. And he was, he was a male. Wow. I had never worked with a male before. Mm-hmm. 
And so I was like, okay, well, you know, if it's not a good fit, that's okay. But let me try because I've never spoken really with a man before. And because of his credentials, you know, I really need to give this a try. I will say that I did more progress with him than I've ever done before, cumulatively, mm. with any mm-hmm. of the therapists I've spoken with. And I think that part of it was his credentials, mm-hmm. his background, but also too, at this point, I was also on my mat. And yes. I had my own educational background. I knew what I was doing, what I needed to do for myself. And so I put to bed that first rape, so to speak. Boy, that's a bad phrase. Wow. Yeah, that's ironic. That's a really bad phrase. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So yeah, Yeah, that was kind of a no pun intended, but (laughs) absolutely. Wow. That's classic. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to close that chapter, yeah. I believe. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of work around the second rape as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but I'm still on my mat. Right. Well, and you're bringing up so many incredibly important pieces. And, you know, you work in a somatic way doing yoga and doing that. I work in a somatic way with EFT, emotional freedom techniques and tapping. And one of the things that you said a while ago, so I'm going to dial back, I'm going to rewind here, was about the actual first event. You were chugging along Everything was really sweet and pleasant and normal and wonderful. And then all of a sudden the event pivoted and turned into something really sour and really wrong. And one of the things that I've noticed as a healer and as a practitioner is that that sudden switch where you go from cognitively being totally okay to suddenly not being okay can actually do more of a number on us than if you are like you have sort of the warning that something bad is coming and you're bracing yourself for it and you're prepared for it and it's kind of consistently wrong. There's something about going from everything is wonderful to all of a sudden, it's like it does a 180 on you that adds a whole other level of shock to the system because your body, I'm sure you were in a state of total receptivity and relaxation right up to the moment where he basically, you know, like it sounds like a Jekyll and Hyde experience. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just thinking that piece of the equation I'm sure made it even more confusing, more challenging and more stuff to another layer of the onion to um, to dissect and release. Absolutely. I will say, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Gift of Fear. I have not. This sounds wonderful. Gavin DeBecker. Okay. Wonderful book. And I think that every woman should read this book. Mm. It is something that my therapist gentleman that I worked with, he had me read. It took me a while. There there are some triggering stuff in there. After reading the book, I said, okay, let me try to put this into play with what had happened in that first rape. And it talks about little warning signs that you kind of miss. You don't take into account and things like that. And, you know, I'm still kind of dissecting it from that lens. Mm -hmm. 
to see where did I miss a cue that I could have kept myself safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still looking for it. Well, and I've had a number of conversations with people over the last years about empaths and narcissists. And one of the things that I have seen in these sort of toxic combinations is that if you have somebody who is essentially lying to themselves about who they are, as an empath, we are like, I think empaths tend to have really, really good bullshit detectors and an ability to sense when somebody's basically lying through their teeth and full of it. But what I've noticed is that when we're around people who are drinking their own Kool-Aid and who have bought their story, we can get almost like imprinted on or kind of like the court. We're reverberating with their sense of who they are in the sense that like if they believe that they are a delightful, wonderful, good guy, then we kind of buy into it. And so I just wonder, as you were saying about your sort of you've been kind of looking for like, what were the signs? I mean, I do think and I don't know if you would say that this guy was fit into the narcissist category, but it seems to me from having many conversations that there is a honeymoon period, that there's sort of a courting period where you can do no wrong, but also where they really are projecting and displaying their best self. And that's what you're getting. And so it is very easy to be like, well, this guy's wonderful. So I guess I just wonder, was there also that aspect of as an empath, like feeling this person's basically like sort of the distortion of his own perception of himself? Yes, because in the beginning, he was wonderful. I mean, I just thought, my goodness, I think this might be him. This might be the guy. Mm. And, you know, even afterwards, you know, I broke it off with him. He attacked me twice more. Wow. He came to my house one day, wanted to go for a walk, wanted to talk. And well, he wanted to talk and I said, let's go for a walk because I didn't want him in my house. I did not want that energy in my house. And I knew that. And I wasn't sure what he wanted to talk about. And I knew we would probably need some privacy. And so I I said, let's go for a walk. And when we were at a point where there weren't any houses around, I grew up in a neighborhood. um, When there weren't any houses around, he tried to attack me again. Mm. And I mean, literally to the point of like jumping on my back. Wow. And trying to strangle me. And I remember, you know, in the beginning, he would, you know, please, I really want to talk to you. And he had that facade again. And, you know, he was a nice guy. And I really thought he was going to apologize to me. And it wasn't, it was, it was not that. And it went south again real quick. And I remember I I literally ran away from him Mm -hmm. back to my house. Um, the third time he called me, he said he was leaving, he was moving to Alaska to go to school Mm. and that he wanted to see me and say goodbye. And I had, um, I had started working in an office and I was, I was wearing uh, a dress and heels and, you know, what have you. And 
I met up with him at a park because I thought, okay, it'll be, you know, people will be there. And it, and he wound up um, cornering me. And before I knew it, he had a hand down my shirt and up my dress. And I remember getting away from him finally. And he was like, but I want to, I still want to say goodbye. What do you, I mean, what do you, I apologize for laughing, but I'm like, oh my God, the crazy, <laughs> like, excuse me, sir, you just tried to assault me again. And now you want me to be nice to you and say goodbye. Yeah. And so, it, you know, yeah, he was drinking his own Kool-Aid. Yeah. Do you know, I'm curious, did he just disappear off the radar or do you know and uh, what happened? I mean, I'm assuming with that kind of behavior that this probably is a person who became a serial rapist. Just just imagining, just saying, do you have any idea whatever happened to him? I know that he left. He went to Alaska. He came back. I was walking in a mall one day with my husband and my two year old son. I had him in a stroller. We had friends with us. We were just walking in the mall. And all of a sudden, he walked past me. Mm. And the look on his face, I mean, if looks could kill. And again, it was all of this negativity and rage and disgust. And, you know, and of course, you know, being an empath, you know, you see it and you feel it before it even passes you, you know, I mean, you just feel it coming at you. Yeah. And I know I went numb. And my husband looked at me and he said, you are white as a sheet. What is the matter? And I said, I just saw the guy who raped me. And he was like, where? I said, he, he just walked by. And when I looked behind, he was gone, mm. but it was crowded. But, and my husband and the other couple we were with, the guy, he was like, where is he? Let's go. Like, and I'm like, no, don't even. I, I mean, my husband was more concerned at that point of that. I was. I was sick. I was physically sick. I mean, yeah. after seeing him and part of that was just because of, you know, all of that emotion, that uh, and negativity and rage and disgust and everything that he was pointing towards me. Yeah, that was. I've never seen him again. I have, um, I don't need to. No. But again, I've done a lot of work around this. And he doesn't scare me anymore. Mm. And I am sure that is so directly connected to all of the work you've done on the mat and all the work you've done with the wonderful therapist that you have found and also just your own. Just, I mean, the incredible journey you've been through to not be scared of him anymore. Well, I know all of that nastiness is him. It's not me. I didn't do anything to deserve it. Mm -mm. And I know that he can't hurt me anymore. Yeah. And when you get to a point where you're not afraid anymore, you kind of become a little dangerous. Yes. You can become a badass when you're not. Well, and, and when, yeah, when we let go of fear, We are capable of doing so much more than when we are dictated and run by fear. Yes, absolutely. And I, um, I realize, like I said, that, you know, he can't hurt me. I mean, what more could they possibly do? Kill me? 
I mean, you know, so it's already been taken away from me. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I've survived. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, he can't hurt me anymore. There's nothing more he can do to me. And yeah, when you let go of that fear, you do, you kind of become a little dangerous because mm-hmm. you know, what's the worst that can happen? What are you going to do? Rape me again? Yeah. But I know that it's his issues. It had nothing to do with me. No, nothing to do with you. I was just really at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong guy. Right. Well, and I mean, I think about the socialization of, you know, the boomers and the Gen Xers, that there is a way in which if you think about the media, if you think about the music, if you think about the movies, one of the recurrent and pervasive messages is this message of, you know, like if he's being menacing, if he's harassing you, if he's chasing you, if he's pursuing you, if he's stalking you, that just means that he's into you. I mean, we have a culture. I mean, I know, and I was having a conversation with somebody just the other day about how it, unfortunately, people are still saying this to girls, but like if a boy is being a jerk, instead of saying he's being a bully and a jerk, don't give him the time of day like you deserve better. We're still telling girls, oh, that's because he likes you. He's harassing you because he likes you. And I think about as I, you know, sort of through kind of a feminist and I don't know, sexual assault of informed lens listening to so much of the music that I grew up on, watching so many of the movies that I was just spoon-fed as a teenager, even reading magazine articles and everything, it seems to me that there is so much grooming for us to be compliant, to be nice, to be complacent, to be nice girls who don't rock the boat. Well, yeah. I mean, we're just here to pleasure them. Yeah. Right? (laughs) I mean, that's the memo I got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and clearly I was just thinking about the movement of incels, you know, and the, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's sort of a group. So there are these young, mostly young men who identify as what's called incels, which is involuntary celibates. Yes. And, but the attitude of that, the reason that they're not getting laid is simply because, you know, the women refuse to do that for them. Not that maybe they need to work on their rapport and their social skills and their intimacy and their ability to actually meet a woman as a human being and not as just something that they can receive or experience pleasure from. But yeah, I mean, I do think socially, there are still a lot of people who have this idea that what our job is, is to be satisfying for somebody else. Sadly. Absolutely. And, you know, there are people who get off on hurting other people that way. Yes. Um, and there are women who enjoy that. There are men yes. who enjoy that. And I don't think that that's a wrong thing. If that is your thing, that's totally cool. If you are in a consensual and respectful relationship and you both are okay with it, you know, 50 shades of gray. Exactly. Well, and 50 shades of gray, actually, I mean, in terms of the whole DS world, and I have a number of friends who are in that world. And so, you know, the bottom line is within BDSM and DS, 
safe, sane, and consensual is the bottom line. But what I will say is that Fifty Shades of Grey is not safe, sane, and consensual. It's a fantasy about completely having your power taken away from you. And, you know, but you're right. There are people for whom this is play, this is negotiation. But the bottom line is it's safe, it's sane, and consensual. There are agreed upon terms and people understand what's going on. And everybody is showing that there's no, even if you're role playing at dominance and submission, it's role playing. It is not that you are power, that that you have somebody who's exerting power over. And there's such a huge difference between those two things. Exactly. And if that was his shtick, that's cool. Yeah. It wasn't mine. And when you said no, you use the fundamental safe word there. No, you know, bottom line, he needed to stop. Exactly. And, you know, I'm the mom of two boys. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of really graphic conversations about, I don't care what you're in the middle of. Quite frankly, you will not die from blue balls. (laughs) No, exactly. If she says no, I don't care what you're doing. You zip up your pants. That's it. You're done. And if you're really concerned about blue balls, go into the bathroom and take care of yourself, buddy. Like, you know, here's the bottle of Jergens lotion. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I think it really comes from education. Mm -hmm. We really need to educate our boys on what is no. What does that mean? Um, How to be respectful and girls, too, because, you know, my poor son, he had to come to me one day and say, mom. I have to tell you something. And because of what you've endured, I, this is breaking my heart to have to tell you this. And I said, okay, well, what is it? And he said, I saw a girl. We had mutual consensual sex. And she is now saying that I raped her. Oh, good Lord. He said, and, and I don't know how, he's like, I can't bear to tell you this. Mm. And I said, okay, well, tell me what happened. And so he gave me the details and I said, okay. As it turned out, a cop had interrupted them. Oh. They were in their car. Uh Uh-huh. And I said, oh, isn't that interesting? I said, so I called the cop. I called the police. The cop came to the house. I said, we need to talk to you. And um, I said, okay, did you, you interrupted? He goes, I remember you. He goes, oh yeah, I, I did. And I said, okay. And he said, oh, I spoke with both of them at the time. And they both expressed that it was consensual. I said, okay, great. This is what's happening now. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Now, not everybody gets that lucky. Mm -hmm. But it was good to hear that the cop had asked that Mm -hmm. to make sure that both were consensual and, and that it was, you know, um, And it turned out she wound up getting arrested because she continued to torment my son. Mm. Um, She sent him, he said he wanted nothing more to do with her. And then she sent him pictures where she had like cut her wrists. He called the police. He said, listen, you know, do a welfare check and da, 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 da. And she was absolutely fine. And Mm. so she wound up being arrested because this cop was like, no, you're not going to yell rape. You're not going to harass this kid. Like he put a stop to it, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the feeling, and again, being an empath, when my son approached me to tell me this, like I could just feel his heart breaking. Yeah. 
And so even parenting as an empath has been very interesting. That is a whole other, like that is, that is the top, that could be an entire season is parenting as an empath. (laughs) Yeah, it is, it is definitely a whole other thing, but, and you know, I, you, you hold up or you pull out something that I think is sadly, you know, there's no gender, (laughs) there's no, there's no gender definition of perpetrator and abuser and liar and nefarious person. It goes both ways that it can be male, it can be female. What is so sad to me is when you do have a female who is acting out in these kinds of ways and using, you know, like pulling the rape card when who knows what is making them tick. But it's so sad to me because it's hard enough in our culture for women to be taken seriously for this experience. And then you have this, I think, I think very like kind of the anomalous redheaded stepchild where like they are not the norm. But when that behavior happens, it just seems like it just it compromises an already tenuous situation in terms of women being validated and acknowledged and respected and like taken seriously for it. So the fact that the cop really was like, you know, this is not happening. He kind of, it sounds like he was very level-headed in recognizing this is not that. Yes, absolutely. She was claiming after the fact that she was high from smoking pot Mm -hmm. and that she couldn't have consented. Oh, okay. And he said, well, I'm a very well-trained professional and I know how to spot someone who is not able to consent, mm-hmm. who is mm-hmm. high. He said, she was not. Mm-mm. That was not the case. He's like, and, and if I can't spot it, you can't spot it. Like, no, you know, this is not the situation. And it is, you know, but what I, I feel really bad for her because what if someday Unfortunately, she gets really raped. Who's going to believe her? Right, right. Who's going to listen to her? Well, and I mean, I don't know. I don't think that those kinds of behaviors come out of or happen in a vacuum. I, you know, I would wonder what her story is already. Like what motivates somebody to pivot and change their story and put themselves in this role of victim? Like, how does it serve her? Who does it serve? What was going on? I just am like, I would be, I don't know, sort of like my spidey sense is that, you know, whether it was that she has a history of sexual abuse already or some other piece of it, it feels to me like there be some dysfunctional things that are going on in that category that would cause, you know, this kind of, I'm I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. So I'm using this in a sort of common language way, but like for her to behave in such a borderline way, like it really sounds like very borderline. There were, I'm sure a lot of other things going on. Yeah. You know, and that's very sad. However, um, my son just got kind of caught up in it and wanted to extract himself from it. And, yeah. you know, the writing was on the wall. He saw it and was like, okay, I, I want out of this. And, um, you know, thankfully, like I said, there were police involved and that kind of thing. And, and yeah, we, you know, it's a double-edged sword because it's a, he said, she said, and I bet you the man who raped me when I was 18, I bet you he doesn't think he did. He probably doesn't. 
I mean, it clearly, even in the fact that he kept on coming back being like, let's just go for a walk. Let's just go do this thing. And even at the last time where he asked to say goodbye to you and then was harassing you and, you know, assaulting you. And then he was like, wait, but aren't you going to say goodbye to me? Like, clearly there's like some kind of does not compute. Yeah. You know, Anissa, I'm fascinated to me. I don't know if you're familiar with kind of the idea of there is a book called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin that's talking about inherited family trauma. And one of the things that it often will talk about is how you have these patterns that repeat themselves for multiple generations to try to reconcile themselves. And what I find fascinating about the story of your experience with your first rapist. And then this story about this girl is that the aftermath sounds very similar in the sense that in both cases, you and your son experienced these people who are kind of coming out of the woodwork and continuing to harass and pursue. And it just, and so I was wondering, like, is there any way that with what you're witnessing what your son was going through that allowed you to see your own experience in a new way or kind of like gave you a new perspective, maybe allowed you to let yourself off the hook even more? No, so much that. It was interesting because I've been on both sides now. I've been on a situation where I was truly raped. And then I had to stand by and watch my son who did not rape, you know, and I had to look at it. Okay. Did you do anything that would make her perceive that she was unsafe being harmed? You know, like I, it was really interesting because I looked at it through that lens and I mean, I wasn't there. Right. Thank God. Um, <laughs> but. You know, it was just kind of interesting. Okay, well, if if that didn't really happen, I was on both sides of it now. And it was really mm-hmm. interesting to be on the other side of being accused of this and it not having happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they say, oh, you, you don't want to ruin a guy's life. And yet I'm looking at it. Yeah, this could ruin his life. And he didn't do it. Right. So it was just like this really, it was like a, a seesaw, you know, seeing both sides and really trying to understand. You know, you said something that I think is really relevant about how important it is for us to teach boys, because interestingly, that was kind of where we started with this piece about your son, but just how incredibly important it is to teach boys about consent and about boundaries, because something you said earlier, you're not even sure if the the man who raped you in the first place, the first, you know, back when you were 18, would even know that he did that. And I think that, you know, that really is how many men who maybe from the outside looking at it, we would be like, that was absolutely non-consensual. But because of the way our culture works, it's like, I really do wonder how many men have been socialized and in kind of misinformed or uninformed to the point where they really do not know that what they are doing is unacceptable. And 
I mean, I'd like to think or hope to think that maybe there's some little flicker of moral compass in there that kind of knows that they're doing the wrong thing. But what if we really are just selling such a bill of goods? I mean, even the I've seen some memes that have talked about how crazy it is to be focusing on teaching women how to try to stay safe or avoid rape instead of raising boys who don't rape. Just the whole culture of it. It's it's kind of crazy. It is. And what I find really fascinating is that there are different types of rape. Yes. And then people absolutely. don't realize it. There is coercion rape. And a great example of this is I've had this happen. I had a guy actually say this to me. Well, I bought you dinner. So you're going to blow me now, right? <laughs> no, mm. this is our first date. And no, I handed him a 20 and told him, told him to drive me home. Like, <laughs> Good for you. I, you know, I, you don't need to buy me dinner if that's what it, you know. So there's coercion rape. There's rape where, you know, if your choice is between being killed or being raped and you choose to be raped, like that's, that's rape. Yeah. You know, if you have to put out to save your life, that's rape. Yeah. And a lot of women who are in domestic violence situations have sex with their partner to keep themselves safe, to appease him. Yes. And things like that. That is rape. Yes. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a gun or a knife pointed at Mm -hmm. your head. Mm -hmm. It's not always a guy pulling a girl down a back alley. Exactly. You know, rape looks like a lot of different things. And it also can be women on men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are men who have been raped. Yeah. Although not as many. However, it does happen. Mm-hmm. And then there are same gender rape. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's a free for all. You know, mm-hmm. we don't hold, we don't quarter the market on this, mm-hmm. although it just happened prevalently to us. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't quarter the market on it. No. But it, it does. It looks like different things. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that, and I'm just going to say men at this point, I don't think that they see it. In all those different angles. Right. Well, and especially if you think about the media representation of rape, you know, now we're starting to get some stuff about date rape or coercion and like sort of the more ambiguous, more areas. But I think that most people's perception really is the stranger in the back out or in the staircase at the parking garage or maybe a coworker after work is cornering you. But it's still the idea of the fact that so frequently the rapist is somebody that we know that and that it does and it can be. It's not black and white. It's not just so like in the way that we have this perception that, you know, it's a violent act and it looks this certain way, it does make a lot of sense that you have a lot of people who are just like, well, that, that, what I just did doesn't fit that category. Therefore, no harm, no foul. I run a a free Facebook group and it's for women who've been sexually assaulted. And one of the questions I get a lot is, I don't know if I was raped. Mm -hmm. And I remember at 18 saying the same thing. Because I had started out consensually and then it turned. And I have so many women who say, I don't know if I was raped. Yeah. And I say, well, if you're asking, you know. 
Right. I actually was at a party and had an experience and it was a coercion rape. And it was a situation where I remember vividly just being like, I said, no, I was in a situation where it could have gone. And if I, but I just was kind of like, okay, fine. I just deliver, like I, I knew the moment, but I just sort of saw it as like at the time and I've written about it in my book. So this is not the first time I'm talking about this, but I saw this, I saw at the time, I just sort of saw it as like my own stupid behavior. And I still do think that the fact that I was drunk and that I was, I had not planned in advance on how I was going to get home. Like there were a lot of factors that led me up to it, but it wasn't until I was actually having a conversation with some of the other women sort of in that circle. And I kind of mentioned it where this other woman was like, Jen, did you say no? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, he just raped you. I was like, really? And so I completely hear you that we're socialized so much to look at it in a certain way that sometimes it's like it it takes another person to say, no, no, that was a violation of your boundaries. That was that your consent was violated here. You said no, and they went ahead and did it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's it's really interesting that, you know, we've got women who are saying, was I raped? Right. And men who don't even know that they did it. Exactly. I mean, some guys just don't even realize that that is rape. They right. just think that, you know, they're, they're kind of pushing the envelope, you know, so they can get, well, yeah, if, if no is the answer, then no is the answer. Right. I think education, again, is paramount to, to both sides. And, you know, there are some girls who pressure guys. Right, right, right. And, you know, and, and same sex. So it's, again, we don't have the corner of the market here, no, but um, no. education is, is really, I think, paramount to it. Absolutely. Anissa, I cannot believe how fast this hour has gone by. Like we're actually coming in on the top of the hour at this point in time. And I could continue this conversation for another hour, I am sure, because this is such an incredibly important, incredibly rich topic. So I guess I would ask you, I've got sort of like a, a thing, a, like a couple part question here. First off, if there was anything that you could say to that 18 year old girl that you were back then, what would you say to her? And then secondly, for anybody who's listening, who is either like, oh my God, I guess I might've been raped or I was raped. Like if, if, or if somebody is just, they know they were, and they're listening to this podcast. What did, like, what would you say, like, what would be first steps for moving towards greater recovery? So first, what would you say to that 18 year old? And second, what steps would you suggest? I would tell that 18 year old that she has no idea how this is going to play out in her life and how it's actually going to inspire the work that she does later on Mm. and, you know, just to hold on because it's a journey. What I've been able to do is really, especially after my second rape, I really looked back and I, I thought, okay, here I am again. What did I need the first time? And what can I use now that could really help me heal? I mean, obviously getting a a good therapist, that's one. But I I started looking at other 
groups like AA, NA, even Weight Watchers. And they also, they have this community aspect to it. Yes. And that community aspect is so vitally important. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's not even about ask, you know, talking about why they're there. Mm-hmm. Just being around others who are in the same situation. Yes. And so I realized that. I realized that when I went through my education to become a yoga therapist and I, I deal with PTSD, all of the stuff I learned. And when I was sitting there in these classes and I'm learning something, I'm like, oh my God, I do that. That's why I do that. That's why my body does that. Mm-hmm. A minute. And that gave me the opportunity that when it was happening in real time, I could say, wait a minute, let me take a breath here. I know what's happening. So I could, instead of react, I can respond differently because I know what this is happening here. So there was an educational piece. And I knew that being on the mat was first and foremost, the most important thing. And so I'm actually creating, it's going to be released between now and Christmas, a membership for women who've been sexually assaulted, who want to be on the mat with me. There's going to be live and recorded sessions. There is going to be a community aspect to it. And there's going to be an educational aspect to it. Mm. And I'm so super excited because this is what I needed. And so I'm just creating it so other women can, can literally have the shortcut to healing. Well, and normalizing the experience, validating each other's experience. I mean, community is so essential. That's a really big part of why I was called to create Empathic Mastery Academy, because it's all about if the world you're in is telling you you're, you know, you're overreacting, you're too sensitive, you're taking it too personally, get over it, suck it up. Or in the case of that wasn't a real rape. It's nothing like being around other people who are like, oh, no, this is my experience, too. This is what I've been through. I think it makes such a huge difference. Anissa, thank you so much for being part of this conversation today. This has been just so real and vulnerable and sincere. I really, really appreciate you talking about the hard things because Obviously, this is this is not like rainbows and unicorns kind of podcast today. No, um, no, it's I really not. appreciate your candor. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. It was it was a really interesting conversation. I am generally not this serious. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I find that laughter gives everything a li- little bit of levity. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm generally not this serious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it was a really in-depth conversation and yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you so very much. Oh, thank you. So, Anissa, how do people get in touch with you? Traumahealingyoga.com. And I'm kind of like a bad penny. I show up all over social media under Trauma Healing Yoga. I am not on like TikTok or Snapchat because I am not that groovy. But Facebook, IG, LinkedIn, 
you know, all the, the regular, yeah, the, the places, the social media places for women of a certain age. <laughs> Let's just exactly. say, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, yeah, Snapchat, I'm kind of like, whatever. Snapchat is never, I think I spent a, like a hot minute checking out Snapchat when I had a bunch of clients who were like probably 15, 20, 30 years younger than me who were all doing Snapchat. And I was sort of checking it out and I was kind of like, what is the point? You guys disappear after you do your thing on Snapchat. Who cares? But yeah, and TikTok. I'm just kind of like, okay, eventually I might, I have a very, very loose identity on TikTok. But so yoga, let's repeat that, that URL one more time. And guys, if you're listening to this and you're out and about, just come back over and find our show notes because all of the show, all of that will be there, including, I will actually put up a link for the gift of fear on the show notes as well. So people can access that as well. So yes, absolutely. So traumahealingyoga.com. TraumaHealingYoga.com, you guys. TraumaHealingYoga.com. Please reach out to Anissa and reach out, you know, like leave comments. Please give us a, a five-star rating if you found this, this show to be wonderful, which hopefully you did. And again, Anissa, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.